going to pick right back up in John's gospel uh, in chapter four. And so if you have uh, your Bibles, if you'd open them or the scripture notebooks, or if you need to come grab one, feel free to do that. Uh, it is okay. And um, we're going to start there in chapter, John chapter four, verse 46. Uh, we're actually gonna look at two stories today. But we are gonna start here uh, with this first story. Uh, the healing of the official son. So we'll start there, chapter four, verse 46. It says, when he went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. He yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized that this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he believed, along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judah to Galilee. So this, this sign, let's just kind of talk, or let's talk about this, this story for just a, a, a moment. This is the story of the official son and some things that we can kind of assume about the official. One, in his capacity, this man is well-connected. As an official, uh, we also not only know that he was uh, well-connected, but he probably had a, a decent amount of power. This is a man who could get things done. But he has come to a harsh reality that, that many of us have come to in, in, in recent days or in past days. And the harsh reality is, is it doesn't really matter how well connected you are. It doesn't really matter how much power you have when a family member is in a health crisis. It, it doesn't really matter. Your, your world stops. And for those of us that have gone through a health crisis, not just in a family, but with a child, it's, it's, it's even worse. Everything in life stops in those moments, and there are really few things that are more powerful than a health crisis. They just are. You're, you're, you're completely lost. You're completely unable to do anything. And this man is coming in and he has this power. He's well-connected. We know all of these things, but, but he comes to Jesus. And then we have this response. Look at verse 48. It's kind of an, an odd response. He comes out of his desperation. In verse 48, Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, part of what we know, and, and some of you know this, some of you don't, so we just say it. In Greek, there, there's no punctuation in the original Greek. And so when I read this sentence, I, I kind of, it, it just kind of bothers me because it's, it's a weird response for Jesus. But the other thing is, is I don't know what the punctuation is here. Because we can read it as it's written here uh, in the, the Christian Standard Bible. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Bam. Or we could put a question mark. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. 
Or Jesus could be upset. And we could put an exclamation point. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. We, we don't know what the punctuation is here, but it seems like a weird response. This man has come, and this man, we, we know, I mean, he's dealing with a health crisis with a child. You know he has to be hurting. He has to be broken. And he comes to the one that he believes can, can save his son. And, this, and the man's response is, you're, you're just looking for a sign and wonder. And it's, it's an incredible statement. So then we can, we can kind of jump down to the, the next verse, verse 49. And verse 49 uh, kind of gives us this, uh, next little piece. And so he says, sir, come down before my boy dies. Now, remember, we don't know a lot about the official son, but there's some assumptions we can make. The man has power. Okay, let's, let's, we, he's called the official son. He has some kind of power. And what people in power tend to do is this. They tend to bring expectations into these situations. So he brings expectations into this situation and the expectations would probably be something like this. So here's what I need you to do. Strange Jewish man from Nazareth. Here's what I need you to do. I, I need you to, to leave whatever you're doing and I need you to come with me because my son's about to die. This is, I, I'm somebody in power. This is what I need you to do. Leave everything, come with me, save my son. Okay, that sounds like a pretty good plan. If, if I was the dad in the situation, I'd like that plan. Drop whatever you're doing because whatever you're doing is not as important as my child that's hurting. We, we can agree. Drop it all, come with me. And so that's the official plan. What does he want to leave with more than anything else? Jesus. His expectation is I'm gonna have this encounter with Jesus and I'm going to leave with Jesus in tow. That's, that's the goal through this whole thing. And so this happens, and so he says, come down with me before my boy dies. And verse 50, then says to us, go, Jesus told him, your son will live. Now, again, what, what did he expect to leave with? He, expect, he expected to leave with Jesus in tow. And all that he leaves with is a word. Jesus doesn't set aside what he wants, or what Jesus doesn't set aside what he's doing in order to do what the man wants him to do. And this man has shown up and has all these expectations, and he's had to set these expectations aside, and he leaves with no expectations met. He leaves with no knowledge that this is actually going to happen. He only leaves with one thing, which is not what he wanted. He leaves with one thing, a promise, a promise, go, go because your son will be made well. That, that's all he has is a promise. And so the man leaves. Now let's go to, to the next story. The next story comes at chapter five, verse one. Chapter five, verse one. So this is following exact, right after the previous story. After this, after what? What we just read, what we just talked about. After this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem by the sheep gate in Jerusalem. There was a pool 
called Bethsaida in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. I want to ask if anybody's 38 years old. I won't do that. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying, lying there and realized he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up. Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got up, picked up his mat and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, the man who has made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So, so we have this second story. It's another story of healing. But in this story, we have this pool, and, and I, this is one of those things, like I wish I could tell you, like this all makes sense. This story, I don't understand this story, and I don't wanna get lost in how much I don't understand about this pool. I have so many questions. I don't know why, who, I mean, it seems like the first person that makes it in gets to be healed. I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't understand it. But I don't wanna get lost kind of in those, in those pieces, but I just, I have a lot of questions about this story. But what we know is that he's been crippled for 38 years. What we don't know is how long he has been by this pool. But he has been there, as the text tells us, for a long time. We don't know how many times the water has been stirred up since he's been there. But I think there's some kind of pieces of this story that kind of will, will kind of help us get a picture of what's going on. In, in the previous story, we, we had an official who's well-connected. He's used to getting his way. This well-connected man comes with expectations of what he wants to do. Here we have a disabled man. He's crippled. He is crippled and he is obviously probably not real well-connected. I think we can assume that. He's not well-connected, but he's used to getting uh, passed by. And really, even in this story, he's used to getting passed by by God. But he's laying there. His expectation is, is that one day he'll make it to the water. His expectation is that one day he'll be healed. But he lays there. He lays there as people pass him by. He lays there uh, probably having to beg for food. And he wants to be healed, but he doesn't know how to make it happen. But that's what he wants. And so these two stories kind of come together and there's a, there's a similarity here that I think is, is really important. Chapter, verse 50, in the, in the previous story, verse 50, we see, we see these words. What's the very first word? Go. Y'all can read. It was easy. Go. Go, your son will live. In this story, chapter five, verse eight, we jump into the next story. What do we have here? What's the first two words? Y'all can do better. Get up. So the first story, we, we have a command, go. The second story, we have a command, get up, right? 
Both of these stories, Jesus is commanding them to do something. Jesus is telling them, this is what I want you to do. Go, your son is healed. Get up. And this kind of even brings us back into the wedding at Cana. Remember there where Mary said, do whatever he tells you to do. Listen to this man. And they both listen, but the incredible kind of piece of the story is, is that we have in this story something that's that's different in these stories for John's gospel. They they get it's something different. In, In both of these stories, we see a heart of faith. They, they, they get down to the core of what faith is. And, and what, what is faith? Faith is to trust in a promise that you hope is true. Now, I know some of you might be like, well, Pastor, I, I don't know if I like that. Because what I would be more, a little bit more comfortable with is, is, faith, is a, faith is to trust in a promise that you know is true. Then that sounds a little better, doesn't it? The problem is, is, is that's if, if we know it, it's not faith. We have to hope in it. Now, I believe with every single thing in me, everything in me, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that resurrection is something that's real, that life is real. I, I believe that with everything in me. And I, as a, as a person of faith, have to trust in that promise of resurrection have to trust in the promise of life. And more than anything in me, I know that it is true, but when it really comes down to it, I still have to hope that it's true. I can testify that I know it's true, but I also have to hope. I hope one day that we will, because I know the Bible says it, that one day Christ will return. I, I know that with everything in me, but it's also about hope. And the incredible piece of this is not only is faith to trust in a promise that you hope is true, the promise that we are hoping in and the promise of faith is life. The thing that connects these two stories, it's really about life. In the first story, we have a story where where Jesus says to the man, you've shown up, you have your expectations, you know what you want me to do, but let me tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go, but I want you to go in the promise of knowing that in the end of this story, there is life. In the end of the story is life. In the second story, the man comes, or the man is there, and Jesus comes to the man, and Jesus says, get up, and I need you to get up and take your mat, because I want you to know something, that at the end of the story, there is life. At the end of the story, there is life. And both of these stories are stories that are pointing us to life. Now, the the problem is, the second story gets, gets a little odd. And I, I cut out the odd part, so now I'm going to cover the odd part. So let's go back. Chapter 5, verse 12. We've already read uh, verse 12 and 13, so I want to read those again. And then I'm going to read down uh, to verse 14. Who is this man? So this is the uh, Jewish leaders there talking to him. Who is this man who told you to pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed didn't know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Verse 14, after this, it's where it gets weird. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, 
I told you. See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now, the, the problem with this verse, this week when I started working on this verse, I got to the verse and the commentary I was reading made a statement and said, this is a really bad translation of this verse. Steve, would you put it, put it back up there just one more time? Verse, uh, go to 14. There we go. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you are well. And here's the line. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. And the commentator said, this is a really bad translation. So I did what I did in these moments and I get out my Greek Bible and I translate it. And I was thinking, and they said that the author made the problem, said this, said that the problem is with the word sin. So I look and I go through the little Greek text and I'm like, well, there's armatia, which is sin. What's the problem? And and the problem, and I want y'all to hear me, the, the problem isn't that it's incorrectly translated. The problem is, is that we bring an idea to this passage that isn't the idea that John intended, is what most people think. Because there's an important thing going on here in John's gospel. Because when we think about sin, we think of that if if I've sinned, I've done something against God, or or as we use in the the language we use in the church, a willful transgression against a known law of God, that's sin. And that's what we kind of bring to this passage, but that's not what John is talking about. In this passage, when John is talking about sin, not just in this passage, but in his gospel, John's gospel looks at sin in a different way. For in John's gospel, sin is not necessarily an individual an individual's transgression against God. Rather for John, sin or the core of sin is alienation from God. To be cut off from God. The core of sin for John is to be cut off from the one that created you. To be cut off from the one who can give you life. And that sin is that thing that that, that cuts us off from him. And so when he says, do not sin anymore, really kind of a, a better way to translate this verse is to say, is for Jesus to say to him, see, see, God has healed you by his grace. But continuing to be cut off from God is far worse than being crippled. You see, God has healed you by his grace, but if you continue a life where you are cut off from God, that is far worse than being crippled. And and so what do we have here? Well, we have faith. Faith is to trust in a promise that we hope is true. And the promise of faith is life. So, so what's, what's the alternative? What's the alternative to a faith in life? The, promise, or the alternative to a life of faith is, is a life of alienation. A life being cut off from the God that created you, the God that can give you life. And Jesus says to the man that day, did you think being crippled for 38 years was bad? Let me tell you what's even worse not having a relationship with the God that created you is far worse. It's far worse. 
that, that what we are supposed to be are people that are in a relationship. And, and the, the kind of crazy thing about this story is, is then what does the man do? Well, verse 15, the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, so Jesus, just, just don't, don't lose this. Jesus comes to him and says, look, if you think being crippled was bad, let me tell you something that's way, way, way worse. Not having a relationship with your father. And the man has an opportunity to respond to grace. What does he do? He goes to the Jews and says, there he is. That's the person you're after. Because right now I'm in trouble for carrying my mat, but the person you really need to be after is that guy over there. And see, guys, the life of faith is a life that says to us, there is a relationship that God has called us into. A relationship that God calls us into that changes everything that we understand about life, that changes everything that we know about life. It changes who we are. It changes what it means to be a Christian. It changes everything about our identity. It changes everything. Last week, we looked at the Samaritan woman, and the Samaritan woman has this encounter with, with Christ, and she walks away and says, let me tell you the person who, who changed my life, who breathed, breathed new life into me. Some of y'all know one of my uh, all-time favorite preachers uh, is a man named Fred Craddock. And I, I called a, a friend this week to ask him a question, and he, he told me a, a Craddock story and, uh, and I thought, oh, that's a good story. And it was about something completely different. So this week, one night, I, I wasn't falling to sleep very quickly. And so I got out my iPad and I have a book called The Stories of Fred Craddock. And so I started reading that. And one of the stories that he's held, he's one of the, the greatest preachers that, that ever lived, taught uh, multiple different seminaries. Was it Vanderbilt? Was it Emory or at Candler down at Emory in um, Atlanta? Was it Oklahoma? All these places. But Fred Craddock, uh, he and his wife, won, they were in Oklahoma at uh, Phillips Seminary and they wanted to get away for a weekend. And so they were from the Southeast. And so they came and went to Gatlinburg, just the two of them. This was back in the 50s. They go to a little restaurant there in Gatlinburg. It's just the two of them. And Craddock said more, all he wanted more than anything else was just to be the two of them, just to be left alone. And he looks in the restaurant and there's a man making his way around all the tables. And so Craddock said he's making his way and he's just like, oh, like, this is not, I do not want to entertain you tonight. This is not what I want to do. And he said, the man walks up to his table. And the man said, uh, how are you doing tonight? And he said, doing good. He said, y'all from here? No. Where are y'all from? Well, we're, we live in Oklahoma. Oh, what do you do in Oklahoma? Well, I teach preaching at Phillips Seminary in Tulsa. Oh, really? You're, what, what, uh, what faith is that? And he said, it's part of the Christian church. And he said, oh, Really? And the man goes and gets a chair and sits down. He's just like, oh no, this isn't good. Like, there goes our meal. And the man said, I, I want to tell you a story about the Christian church, which was, it's a denomination. So I want to tell you a story. He said, when I was a kid, I was born just on the other side of this mountain. No one in the town of about 1,300 people had any idea who my dad was. I was born to a woman, no idea who my dad was. And he said, back in that day, you were called a word for that. And everywhere I went, 
my teachers, the preachers, everybody in town called me that word. I had no idea who my dad was. See, I got to be a teenager, and we had a new preacher in town. He said, so I started going to the church, and he said, but I knew how to do it. I would come in late, and I would sneak in right when the music ended. I would listen to him preach, and then as soon as he said amen, I was out the door because I knew if I talked to anybody in that church, they would call me that word. And he said one day he preached, and he wrapped up his sermon faster than I thought he was going to. And I lost track of time and he prayed and the people got up and I was still sitting there. And he said, they were filing up and he said, I got up and I'm trying to get my way through. And he said, a hand came and rested on my shoulder. He said, I turned around and looked at the man and it was the preacher. Never met him before. And the preacher looked at me and he said, I'm trying to figure out who you are. I've seen you, I don't know you. I'm trying to figure out who your daddy is. And the man said, here it is. He's going to say it. And he said, he looked at me, looked me in the eye and said, I see the resemblance. I know your dad. Your dad's the creator of this universe. The father of all. Go. Knowing that you're a child of God. That man finished that story, and Fred Craddock said, I looked at him and said, what's your name? The man said, I'm, my name's Ben Hooper. Now, I grew up in Tennessee. I took Tennessee history. I never heard of Ben Hooper, but I looked him up. Ben Hooper was the governor of Tennessee two terms. And as the governor of Tennessee, he did two really, really big things. Number one, he made it a state law, this was back in the 40s, that everybody in the state of Tennessee had to go to school for 12 years. That was a cutting edge thing. He also made it a state law that when a woman worked outside of the home, that her paycheck had to be given to her and to not her husband, which was a very controversial statement at the time. And what changed his life was someone looking him in the eye and saying, I know your daddy. You, you, you have life because of a God. Go. <laughs> Get up, take your mat. You think you're crippled, but you're not crippled. Because there is a God who has commanded you to do something and the greatest thing you could ever do in life is to no longer be cut off from that God. To go out into the world and to make a change, to go out and to do something because you know who your father is, because you are no longer cut off from that father, go. And Jesus says, go, because I need you to know that life does win. That whatever health concern, whatever it is, the, 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 the official that comes knowing that his son is broken, knowing that his son is dying, go because I need you to walk in the promise that life does win. No matter what you're facing, no matter how hard it is, get up and know that I know you're broken. I know you're hurting, but I need you to trust in the promise that life does win. You see, it's important it's important that we believe in our hearts about who God is. 
For so many of us, it's, it's easy to believe in our head. I can stand, and most, a lot of us could stand and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and personal Savior. And that's up here. That's important. But today, the question isn't, do you believe it up here? The question is, do you believe it in here? And when we believe it in our hearts, we hear a Savior that says to us, go. Go, get up. Knowing that you don't know how this is going to turn out. Part of what I love about the story is the man had to leave with no idea if his, if his son was healed. All he had was the word of Christ and a promise. That whatever it was, it was going to work out. Whatever happened, it would work out. Do you trust Jesus enough to respond to the word that he speaks to you? Go. Get up. Do what I have called you to do. Know that you are loved. Know that there is a God who knows you by name, who calls you by name. No matter what the past is, no matter what people have called you, that there is a God who looks you in the eye and says, I love you. I created you for a purpose. We have been closing a little bit differently here for the past month or so. And so with having the scouts with us, I want to just explain kind of what we're doing so y'all don't think, what are they doing? Uh, but the way we've been closing uh, is I've been designating kind of our altars. If this morning, if you say, I have uh, never accepted Christ as my Savior, I don't, I don't know what that means. I, I, I feel that urge, but I, I've never done that. That if you would come down to this altar today, uh, I'll have Randy come down. Pastor James is usually down there, but he uh, is at, at home this morning. Uh, and so I'll ask Randy if he would go down there. And if anyone wants to go down there to pray, Randy would be happy uh, to pray with you down there. Uh, at this altar right, uh, right here, uh, we believe in the Church of the Nazarene in a God who heals. Um, a God who, uh, as, as we've read these two stories, a God who doesn't just tell us to go, doesn't just tell us to get up, but a God who touches and heals. And so if you this morning want to be prayed for uh, and anointed for healing, uh, as James says in his epistle, that you can come down and I'll be happy to pray with you there and anoint you for healing and to be able to pray with you. The other two altars on this side are for those of you that, that might want to just pray and to be able to, to answer the question, do I trust Jesus enough to respond to the go, to the get up, to the promises that he has made in my life? Do I trust him enough to move from a head knowledge into a heart? The worst thing we can ever do, as Jesus says, is to live a life cut off from the one who created us. And faith is making that connection and saying, God, I need you in my life. It's far worse. So this morning, as we stand, we're gonna sing. And if you wanna come and just find a place to pray, I just invite you to come, to come and pray. Let us stand as we sing.